0: Well, Please turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. The, w- the way the Lord is uh, working things, I'm not really going through any series fast these days. And so it took a while for Jonah and I had an introductory sermon on Leviticus. And my plan was to have two, two sermons leading up, to kind of building the narrative. It's just, we're going to stick with that course, even though it's kind of broken up. And so we're going to read Genesis chapter 3. I know this is a very familiar passage, so I'm just going to give you some things to listen for. I want you to pay attention to as we listen to this passage from God's Word. Notice the fallout of disobedience. Notice the consequences. Notice what is lost. And take care to notice the geography. Let us pay attention then to God's Word. the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and ye you shall, you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face ye you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and also take of the tree of life and eat it and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is God's word. Please pray with me. Father, as we come to your word and we're preparing the background to understand and appreciate and even delight in the book of Leviticus, would you give us insight? Would you give us physical stamina right now, even as in our in our physical capacities we may be a little full and a little drowsy? Would our hearts be aflame, hungry to hear your word? For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I grew up, one of the... Assignments that I had, I was homeschooled, was to read a book that had excerpts of, of literature in them. And one of the excerpts was from a short story called The Man Without a Country. I don't know if you've read that. It was written um, it was actually a piece of union propaganda, but it's a good story. It kind of had, a, had an angle to it. But it was written in 1960 or 19, 1863, I believe. And I'm summarizing mostly Wikipedia, sometimes directly quoting from them here. But it's a story of a man who spurned his country but became utterly homesick. So the protagonist is this young army lieutenant, Philip Nolan, and he develops a friendship with Aaron Burr in the early 1800s. And Burr is tried for treason, and Nolan is is kind of caught up in this and tried as an accomplice. And during his testimony, he shouts, renounces his nation with an oath saying, I wish I never heard or hear from the United States again. The judge is shocked and he says, "Okay, you're going to get your wish. And he condemns him to exile, to live out his life on U.S. Navy warships, never to set foot on his country again, never to hear any news of America. And so for the rest of his life, Nolan is transported from ship to ship. He lives out his life as a prisoner in the high seas, never allowed back at home port. None of the sailors who are guarding him are allowed to say anything to him about his country. Newspapers are censured. At first, Nolan is fine with this. But over time, He becomes sadder and wiser and desperate for news until near the end of his life. He wants to hear desperately about his country. And one day he's being transferred to yet another ship. This is now during the time of the Civil War. He beseeches a young sailor. He pleads with him to not make the same mistake that he did said, remember, boys, boy, that behind all these men, behind officers and government and people, even there is the country herself, your country, that you belong to her as you belong to your own mother. Stand by her, boy, as you would stand by her mother. And you could imagine his longing as he stayed in harbor, but he wasn't allowed to go and actually set foot on his country. He could never go home. And this afternoon, we're going to be tracing the theme of homesickness. And we've talked in Sunday school about how creation and the Garden of Eden prefigure the temple, the parallels that you see, the cherubim and the river of life and the food imagery. And and we'll see this in in later images. Adam and Eve were supposed to live in this beautiful garden. And and God gives them the mandate to be fruitful and to multiply, to to extend his glory through the end of the world. But instead of that, they are banished from the garden because of treason. And Dr. Morales, who writes the helpful book on Leviticus, from where I'm getting some of this, this overarching theme, says this expulsion from God's presence is the central tragic event that, that drives the history of redemption. And, and so Genesis is a very bittersweet book as, as it leads us into Leviticus. You know, humanity is designed to live with fellowship in God, starts in the garden and ends up in Egypt with slavery hanging over them. And, and after the garden, even the brightest points, the best points... The life with God is nothing like it was in Eden. And you might be wondering, well, where is Leviticus in all of this? Well, remember that Moses starts Leviticus very abruptly. The Lord calls to Moses to come into the tent of meeting. And in my study, I found it very helpful to understand the story leading up to Leviticus so that we have this this yearning, this homesickness. And so I want to explore this bitterness, this bittersweet homesickness in Genesis Because Genesis, all God's people are waiting for and they will die outside the promised land. There's a promise, yes. But the realities remain in the shadows of the future. And what we're going to do today is you mourn with God's people their loss of Eden and and moving further and further away from his presence. What this should do is naturally move you to want to yearn towards Mount Sinai, to move towards Leviticus and the day of atonement where God dwells with his people. I want you to put yourself in the place of God's people even before Israel is formed and and see how that when you would come to Leviticus from that place, you would say, oh, yes, this is what I'm waiting for. And so the idea that we'll be exploring today is that you are weary travelers longing for the promised land. You're weary travelers longing for the promised land. And it's not just the saints of old. You are today, whether you realize it or not. And so we're going to look at three movements in Genesis away from the Lord that that sets up this homesickness that should lead us to yearning for Leviticus. And the first is from from Eden to the flood. Now put yourself in the place of Adam and Eve when the Lord confronts you after Genesis 3. You have broken the one commandment that God has given you. He, He confronts you in his righteous glory. He expels you out of Eden. You're spared and you receive this promise, but you're also cursed and exiled. How would you feel? Have you ever wasted something? Have you ever damaged or destroyed something due to negligence? Maybe as a kid, you were throwing a ball around and you broke some of your mom's china, or you you know you crashed your parents' car because you, you just didn't look when you were backing out. That would be me, right? You, you feel you feel terrible. You feel like I, I can't believe I was so thoughtless. You are sick. That's how they feel. You feel the sting of the curse. You imagine pain and discomfort for the first time, getting sick. The fear of animals, the threat of death, growing old, these things that we take for granted, but we shouldn't in some ways. We weren't made to be that way. And then worst of all, losing that face-to-face relationship with God. Can you imagine a relationship where you break the trust of a good friend or the love of your life, and it is so bad that they say, I can't be with you anymore. And they are right to do that. You have violated their trust in such a way You would feel utterly wretched. The damage is done. The relationship is forever changed. And you can never go home. The Lord casts Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden, away from his immediate presence, and he guards the entrance with cherubim. And notice that the Lord places them in the east. Now, this is significant. In this first part of Genesis, east is the direction away from God. It's no accident that the tabernacles and temple entrances were to the east. The idea was that you entered in the east and you moved into a progressively more holy space until you got to the Holy of Holies, which is where the Ark of the Covenant guarded by the cherubim were. I'm not going to have you turn there, but if you're interested, you can look. You can, you can go to Ezekiel chapter 10 and Ezekiel chapter 43. You can write those down and look at them later. It's amazing how much Ezekiel has come up recently. It's my new best friend in the Old Testament. I've actually got some commentaries on Ezekiel. I'm learning it a little better. But, but chapter 10 is the glory of the Lord departing from the temple because of idolatry. And how does it happen? Well, the glory comes out of the, the holy place and it goes to the east gate and it departs. And then... In, after Ezekiel gets uh, an idealized tour of this new temple where there's, there's a north and a south and an east gate, no west gate. Why there's no west gate? Well, because, because that's where the Holy of Holies is. If there, if there's, a, there's a dead end there. It's contained in the Holy of Holies. When the Lord's presence of glory comes back, it starts from the east and moves westward back into the temple progressively into the holy place. By the way, this would be another argument for seeing Eden in some way as a temple. It, it has an entrance to the east, just like the tabernacle and the temples do. And here, like the temple, it is guarded by cherubim, like, uh, like the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. Notice, too, that in Adam and Eve are still in Eden in some way. That's what it seems to be. They're, they're not in the garden anymore, but Eden is larger than the garden. Look at Genesis 2, verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man from whom he had formed. So there's Eden, and then inside of Eden, there's a garden. And then look at Genesis 3, verse 24. And the Lord drove the man, out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword. And so when he drives the man out, it doesn't say he drives him completely out of Eden. He drives him out of the garden, which is in Eden, which means that they might still be living in Eden. And this makes even more sense when you go over to chapter 416, where it says Cain, when he fled, came away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. You see the you see the, the center. You have the garden of Eden, you have Eden, and then you have Nod, which is east of Eden and they're, they're moving progressively farther away from God's presence. And so if Adam and Eve are still living in the area of Eden, but banished from the garden, in some ways they are like Lieutenant Nolan. right? They're, they're The cherubim are right there. You can see the tree of life. It bars it forever, but they can never go home. And then Cain kills Abel, and so then he moves west, or eastward explicitly from the presence of the Lord now. The Lord has mercy on Cain and sends him off as a wanderer, and yet... In defiance, he builds this city in Nod. And it's significant, we'll return to this in a little bit. He names it after his son, and, and they develop the technology of cattle, metal, and music. Uh, chapter 5 in Genesis ref- reinforces this, this bittersweet with the refrain, He died, and then He died, and then He died. And then chapter 6, the line of Seth intermarries with the line of Cain, and their hearts are turned. And so the Lord brings a flood. And so that brings us to that first ark. God's people slowly moving away from his presence. Well, let's look at the flood then, from the flood to Abraham. You can come to Genesis 7, verse 20. There are two things that are happening here in the flood. The Lord destroys the world as his righteous response to their sin, and then he brings in a new creation. Look at Genesis 7, verse 20. Uh, the waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. All the flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, all mankind, everything on the dry land and whose nostrils of breath was life had died. It was all, the crea- all, the, all, all the categories of creation, that's the destruction of creation. And look eight verse one. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the water subsided. The fountains of the deep of the windows of the heaven were closed. The rain of the heavens was restrained. The water receded from the earth. And at the end of 15 days, the water abated and it came to rest on the mountain of Ararat. And now God blesses the new creation. It's new creation. Noah sacrifices. And once again, he gives Noah the same charge that he gave to Adam. Be fruitful and multiply, showing that Noah once again is to pick up what God is supposed to was doing through Adam. It's a special covenant. But right again, although there's a new start, it's not as close as Adam and Eve. Now you have to have sacrifice to reach God. And it seems like they're further away. And then there's the second descent. Noah fails. And from his descendants come another spawn of rebels. And finally, their defiance culminates in building a great city. Look at chapter 11, verse 1. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they've had bricks for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, this is nothing new. Like Cain, who built his city, these people want to build a city without regard to the Lord. But here, there's some more information. They build a tower, and this tower, commentators must completely agree, was almost certainly a ziggurat. Kids, do you know what a ziggurat is? It's 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 like a pyramid with steps. It's it's like a stairway to heaven. And ziggurats were temples that were built to resemble mountains. Sounds kind of familiar. Like We were talking about the Garden of Eden being a mountain and we don't know for certain, but most likely when Cain built a city, he also had some kind of temple or mound in the in the middle where he worshipped. Now, I would say there's, there's that's just what you did back then. And, you know, one of the fascinating mysteries, by the way, about ziggurats is how you find them all over the world. There's an interesting uh, chapter in a book from Answers in Genesis just talking about how you see them in South America and Asia and, and Mexico and the Middle East and, and perhaps North American Indians and perhaps off of Japan. It's very fascinating. How, how, why is this? It doesn't seem to fit like the hunter-gatherer evolutionary paradigm. Well, you think about it. If God scattered the nations at Babel and they were building this city and tower, wouldn't it make sense that they would try to build something like it wherever they went? Well, if this tower is a ziggurat, what are they trying to do here? Well, they're trying to recreate Eden. Right? They're, they're trying to go back to the garden in some level. They're trying to rebuild the mountain. On, on one sense, this is foolish. How can you have Eden without God? It's laughable and insignificant compared to the glory of God. Verse 5 mocks their effort when it says, The Lord came down. There's this big tower, and God has to stoop down to see it. But can you blame them? They're homesick for Eden. And yet they insist on trying to create a paradise apart from the Lord. Instead of being fruitful and multiplying and reflecting God's image, we will make a name for ourselves. How do we try to do that today? Retirement? Parenting? Career? John Piper very helpfully said, don't waste your life, don't try to create heaven here on earth. God's going to do that someday. You can't. If you find yourself daydreaming and obsessing over something in this present life, ask yourself, am I trying to create heaven here on earth some way? Something that's special, making it an idol. One of the things I've just enjoyed is having more life to live, the Lord's given me, is is spending time with my kids. One of my favorite times is... In the morning, we'll have, I'll come over at about 10 o'clock and we'll have our, our family worship and then we do poetry or a poetry, as Rachel says, and we go and we sit down and on, on my lap, on Elizabeth's lap, and we read books and it's special and beautiful. And it, I have to remind myself, this is not the garden. As, as wonderful as it is this, is, this is not the garden. I can thank the Lord for these times that he's let me live here but I shouldn't dare try to make this even to Eden. It will disappoint. There's only one person who can satisfy those longings. What's God's response to human failures again? He changes the language, he scatters the people, and then he chooses one more person, someone who doesn't deserve any special attention, but will receive it because the Lord is gracious. Now, there's a wordplay here. Those at Babel wanted to make make a name for themselves. Genesis 11.4. The Hebrew word for name is shame. Well, what comes next? The genealogy of Shem. We say Shem, but it's spelled the exact same, Shame. And from shames, names, descendants, God chooses Abram to become Abraham. And this moves us to our third segment, and we'll touch only briefly here. But the wordplay continues from chapter 11. God calls Abraham, He says, I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And Abraham's clearly presented as a new, what are it, God's response to man's attempt to make Eden without him. It's very clear that God's going to make a new people through Abraham. He's going to be taking up the role of Adam. It's a new paradise promised in the promised land. Once again, you'll see the creation mandates to be fruitful and multiply given to Abraham in Genesis 16:7, and then repeated to Jacob later on in the book and to Israel. And yet, once again, the results are mixed. Abram becomes Abraham. And he shows great faith, but there's this bittersweet longing for the promise. His faith is mixed with sin. He lives as a guest, a great and honored guest, but a guest in the land that God promises him. He travels down multiple times to Egypt and back, showing where his people will go. And as you transition to Isaac and Jacob, they're still outsiders in this promised land. And all the time, God appears less and less. He provides through Joseph, but there's the bitterness of jealousy and infighting. Jacob sums it up in his experience when he blesses Pharaoh in chapter 47. Few and bitter have been my years. And the end of Genesis ends with Joseph dying in Egypt. And now there's a hope there. But Joseph ends in this land of graves. The promise is unfulfilled. It ends in a bittersweet note. Joseph, although the Lord has worked through him and has all this faith, he dies as a man without a country. He never went home. Now there's promise and grace, but can you feel the burden of these weary travelers? They're homesick for Eden. They're longing for the presence of God. Let's apply this tour through Genesis, looking towards Leviticus. How does Genesis then prepare you as you come to this book in Leviticus? Genesis is the introduction to the story of God's people and it's asking, how do we get back to Eden? And instead of getting closer, humanity grows farther away. Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteous, but but the promise wasn't complete. They're left strangers in their own land with only glimpses of God's promise. But then there's the deliverance from Egypt to Mount Sinai. And and next time we'll see that the Lord of Sinai builds the tabernacle and that's like a little Eden where they're coming back to. But it's not until Leviticus, the day of atonement, where God's people are once again brought into his presence. And so as you read through Leviticus, or as my sister right now is listening to the Bible, and she says, it's honestly, when I get to Leviticus, I've got to concentrate extra hard because there's all this repetition, and you think, what is going on, these sacrifices and laws? But don't you see, God is making a sacred space for his people to meet with him again. He's, he's purifying the sanctuary, and he's purifying the people so they can come back into his holy presence. And once you understand that, you can place yourself with the weary travelers in Genesis. Leviticus starts to feel more like home. I pray that the homesickness of Genesis actually makes you a little more excited for Leviticus. And yet we can say, well, how does this affect your life this week? The drama of redemption doesn't stop at Leviticus. It's fulfilled in Jesus. As I said, too, we we are weary travelers longing for the promised land. And as you think about being east of Eden, first of all, it reminds you that you need a savior. Time and time again in Genesis, we see that if we do it our way, if we don't approach through sacrifice, when we run from God, we make a mess. We can't fix ourselves. Now, it is interesting that in Genesis, fallen humanity produces some impressive things. Cities, towers, technology. But it all ends in death and separation from God. When I was younger, I was a big Trek fan. I still appreciate some Star Trek. And, you know, there's some mixed results now with the, the newer newer generations. And I, I there was a, a, a comment thread about some fans. They were commenting on the new Picard series that's come out for any of you who follow Star Trek. And they were commenting that new Star Trek is so dark. You know, it used to be so optimistic about hey, this is how this South future is going to be. Why does it have to be so dark? And someone said this, why? Because the future is now, and it ain't so great. You know, when Star Trek started in 1966, 55 years ago, you got to 2020, and the world was, we'd figured it all out, and uh, I think it was actually a little bit later, but you know, there's a great rosy picture for humanity. Well, now we've gotten here, and humanity's no better. In fact, we might argue that in some ways we're we've worse. We're a mess on our own. And yet, because of our own towers, because of science and technology, which are our temple, many people today have no sense of their need for God or their brokenness. And sin, salvation, a the savior, they're foreign, they're irrelevant categories. It's very easy for you to say to, oh yes, of course I need Jesus, but, but maybe not perhaps as much as I think, as I need, as I, you know, maybe not quite that much. And you live with the people trying to recreate Eden. If you get impressed with that, You might not be so sad that you are not yet back in the garden and that your only hope is for the blood sacrifice, which Leviticus will spell out in graphic detail and Jesus will fulfill fully. We are lost and stranded, cut off from God and without him. You can never go home. And that has not changed from Genesis to now. And the more you realize that, the more beautiful and costly Jesus' sacrifice is for you. The more wonderful it is. It protects you from the idolatry of the present and fills you with constant joy. And so fight for that. Pray for that. Look to those wandering east of Eden and remember that I'm no different from them. I too need a Savior. And then we can lament being lost in the wilderness. Now, as you live in this world, it is okay to lament the hardness of this world You can lament your sin. You can lament your limitations. The fact that this world is not the way it's supposed to be. Jacob's blessing to Pharaoh is quite poignant in Genesis 47. The days of my years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. I'm a wanderer. My life has been hard. I'm dying sooner than my fathers did. You know, I feel this now, so life is hard for me, I have less energy, I need to take naps, everything seems to take more time and effort. There are some things that I can't do now that I used to do, and maybe I'll never be able to do them again. Now, most days I'm joyful and thankful for the fact that the Lord's given me life, but there's still a place to lament losing part of my physical capabilities, and as you grow old, and as some of you have shared, Ruth, with her, her parents growing old, and you watch yourself growing old, or you're grieved by your in indign- growing sin that is so stubborn it will not root out, there is a place to stop and remind yourself that you are in some way still east of Eden. The Apostle Paul tells us, Romans 8, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. You will experience God's presence much more fully when Jesus comes back. And for now, we can lament being in the wilderness. It's not the only note that you should sing, but it is one of them. But then finally, you can rejoice in your hope. The Lord is here with Israel, like Israel in the desert. His spirit is here to guide us. We long for a better country, a spiritual country. And yet we have a far better consolation than those in Eden. You don't just have the promises given, but you have the promises realized. You don't have Eden, but you have Jesus. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. While you may not yet be at home in your final country, you are not a man or woman without a country. You have a better country. King Jesus dwells with you. One day you will go home. And because of that, you have hope. I'm bound for the promised land. I'm bound for the promised land. Oh, who will come and go with me? I'm bound for the promised land. Please pray with me. Lord, as we walk through this world and we experience both joy and weariness, let us fix our eyes on Christ. We thank you for the hope that we have your gospel that runs so clearly throughout all scripture, that grounds us in difficult times, in times of pain, in times of trial, in times of death, in times of depression, we thank you for that anchor that we have, who is Christ, and we rejoice in you. And so we cling firmly and tenaciously to you and your good news. For we pray this in Jesus' name, Amen. Please stay-